Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Saturday, February 4th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and this week I am here alone because my co-host Chris is on a well-deserved weekend away. So it's just going to be me talking, so I'm going to keep this pretty tight. In today's episode, we are going to cover some more ridiculousness from Sam Bankman-Fried, just because it's kind of gossipy and fun. There's no real purpose to what's going on with him. He's trying to stay out of jail and he'll do anything to stay out of jail. In other news, the Bitcoin payments company Strike is expanding their app for use in the Philippines. This is really cool because Americans or Filipinos in America send about a billion dollars to the Philippines every month. And if they can reduce transaction fees by even a few percentage points, that could be very impactful for many people in the Philippines. In privacy, my favorite VPN provider Molvad has a piece about a new EU piece of legislation which is designed to protect children but might actually completely screw up private communication and open source licenses. And I also want to have a little bit of a riff on economics. I'm going to talk about some of the soft landing narratives and uh, just speculate generally, uh, share my opinion. Um, So feel free to skip that. I couldn't find an article that really encapsulated the points I'm trying to make. So I'm just going to talk generally and see how that goes. In Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 236, which introduces a proposal for a serverless pay join. This is super cool. And we'll talk about that and also the noise protocol that it is based on. Also, this week, there has been a lot of talk about something called ordinals. Ordinals is the work of Casey, who is a really cool guy, a Bitcoin Core developer, though he wouldn't call himself that because he considers his contributions to Bitcoin Core to be not very important. I disagree. I think if you've made a commit, you're a contributor. So he is really interested in all sorts of things, including digital art. And so he's created ordinals, which is a way to do another thing called transcriptions on top of Bitcoin. And this is essentially on-chain NFTs on Bitcoin. There's controversy here. It really was always possible, but this is just a kind of a better way to do it. So we'll just talk about that because it can lead to some interesting conversations and nuances when it comes to how we use the Bitcoin blockchain and what we consider good and bad use of that blockchain. And is there a non-subjective view on what's good for the blockchain? And then we will have some Okay, jumping in. Our favorite effective altruist scammer, Sam Bankman-Fried, is in a bit of drama with some of the conditions around his bail. It seems that he has been reaching out to former and current FTX employees and trying to chat them up. And the thing is, the people he's contacting are very likely to be witnesses in the trial against Sam Bankman-Fried. And so from a just reasonable legal perspective, this looks like witness tampering. And in the U.S. criminal justice system, tampering with the legal process, if you're being investigated and you it seems like you're attempting to conspire with people who might have evidence against you and maybe bribe them or threaten them to prevent them from testifying against you, this is really, really serious. And these were tactics that the mafia used during the Great Depression when they had a monopoly on alcohol distribution in the United States, because that also coincided with this era of prohibition, where the U.S. officially banned the sale of alcohol, and it pushed all of the production and distribution underground, which turned the criminal syndicates that ran alcohol production in the U.S. into you know some of the most powerful and uh, wealthy organizations in the country. And it 
was a big mess. And so there are a lot of law enforcement tools, like legal tools, like anti-racketeering laws, things like that. They actually were developed to attack the mafia during Prohibition. And that includes, I think, witness tampering, because, you know, the mafia was very good at threatening witnesses so that, you know, law enforcement couldn't build cases against, you know, mafia members. So Sam's behavior using encrypted messaging apps like Signal to reach out and try to talk to FTX employees who might have dirt on him, this is just so out of any sort of normal bounds of behavior. I mean, the fact that his lawyers allowed him to do this or couldn't stop him suggests that Sam is really out of his mind. He's probably just an absolute total narcissist or someone who is completely detached from reality. So it looks like he's banned from further contacting current or former employees. And he's also banned from using encrypted chat applications. Now, I don't know how you monitor this ban, but I imagine he will break it. So he probably should be back in jail where he can't access computers if you, you know, if the court wants to prevent him from tampering with witnesses. Another interesting link in this article has to do with a request by Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers to remove the bail condition that prohibits him from accessing and transferring the crypto assets he stole from FTX customers. This is pretty outrageous because those are stolen funds. They should never have had access to them. And he's likely using these funds to pay for his lawyers and to do other things like perhaps bribe witnesses who might testify against him. So this is a pretty insane request. This is the tone of the SBF trial. It's like this self-centered, privileged, insane person just behaving as if the world revolves around them and there are no consequences to their actions. We can uh, put that on SBF's professional tombstone, maybe. I hope. In much more positive news, the Bitcoin payment app Strike is expanding into the Philippines. So Strike is essentially a payments application. It's run by a company which was founded by Jack Maulers, who's kind of a typical shadowy super coder wearing a hoodie. He's a very young guy, very passionate. I think he was in many ways responsible for helping accelerate developments in El Salvador because he met with Nayib Bikeli before the Bitcoin law was passed. And I think it was kind of expected that Strike was going to get the contract to develop the Chivo app for the El Salvadorian government. That instead went to Atena, uh, which is a Central American company that does Bitcoin stuff. I think that Stripe probably would have done a better job because Chivo is a pretty crappy experience to use so far. But the Athena developers say that what they've done is good. The issue is the sort of controls, the KYC, the compliance stuff, the anti-fraud stuff, and that kind of screws up the user experience, which is really just a story about using self-sovereign Bitcoin directly and not using an intermediary. That said, Strike is an intermediary that uses the Bitcoin Lightning Network as a way to transfer money between Strike users and traditional bank accounts nearly instantaneously with very low fees. So... Why do we care and how does this work? Well, let's just talk about how it works for a moment. The Lightning Network is a layer two protocol built on top of the Bitcoin network. The way that Lightning works is I have a Bitcoin node. My friend uh, Juan in the Philippines has a Bitcoin node. And so I decide that I'm going to want to do a lot of business with him. So I, I create a special Bitcoin transaction, which is a two of two multisig. And I use the public key from Juan's node and I use the public key from the Bitcoin dad node 
And this transaction I broadcast to the main Bitcoin blockchain, it actually has both of our public keys in it. And it means that I've just sent my Bitcoin, let's say I use a whole Bitcoin just to keep things simple, into a transaction controlled by both me and Juan. It's a two of two multi-sig contract which means that both of us need to agree to spend the funds. Well, why the heck would I do that? Why would I weaken my property rights on this Bitcoin so that I could send it into a contract where Juan could, you know, presumably disagree with me taking all my money back or something like that? And the answer is because this transaction has a time lock. And so if Juan and I disagree, I can broadcast within a certain time period, I can broadcast another a pre-signed transaction that gives me all my money back. And so the way that Lightning works is because these two nodes both have sort of quote-unquote joint ownership to this UTXO on the main Bitcoin blockchain, the, the UTXO is the thing that comes out of the transaction I broadcasted, this two-of-two multi-signature transaction, it means that we can update the settlement transaction. We can essentially off-chain allocate bits of this Bitcoin back and forth. If you know what an abacus is, it's like we've opened up an abacus between my node and Juan's node. And right now, when I open the transaction, all the beads, which represent Satoshi's, are on my side. But if I start to send him some lightning payments, we slide a couple of beads onto Juan's side, and then we create a new settlement transaction that if we were to close the lightning channel, Juan would get a few Satoshi's that I sent to him, and I would get the rest of the Satoshi's that I haven't spent yet. So this is how a lightning channel works, and this scales really nicely because if I have a channel with Juan and I have a channel with Sarah and Sarah has a channel with Pedro, then Juan can send money via all of our nodes to Pedro. It doesn't cost me anything to route Juan's payment. It just sort of moves the Satoshi beads on this abacus from Juan's side to my side and then my side to, sorry, I forgot the name of the lady, her side and then from her side to Pedro's side. So it, it just sort of shifts Satoshis through the network and it's essentially costless. It's very cool. Now, what is Strike doing with the Lightning Network? Strike is combining this very efficient payment system with dollars because dollars are very useful. Everyone in the world, especially if you don't have a lot of money, wants dollars. They want to save in dollars. If you're sending money overseas, even using the traditional banking system, it's almost always denominated in dollars. So dollars are the world reserve currency. It's the currency of the world. I would say arguably every other fiat currency is a layer on top of dollars, but we could debate that maybe. So what's happening with Strike is there essentially you have a Stripe app, you live in the United States, but let's say it's uh, it's me, I'm going to send money to Juan in the Philippines. And I I open up the Stripe app and I'm like, I'm you know, I owe Juan a hundred bucks. So I, I deposit a hundred bucks in my Stripe app and Stripe is hooked into the US ACH network, which is an interbank automated clearinghouse system. And essentially it's a way of uh, debiting and crediting bank accounts using the traditional financial system. And Strike has a way to basically debit my bank account in the US and credit Strike's bank account in the US. And then Strike takes these dollars, and I don't really know how long it takes to clear 
those uh, traditional finance transactions with the Strike app because I've never used it. I don't really use KYC apps like this, but theoretically, you have a hundred bucks in your Strike app. I want to send these hundred dollars to my buddy Juan in Manila, which is the capital of the Philippines. And so Strike sells this hundred dollars into Satoshi's, sends the Satoshi's to a Lightning node in the Philippines that's plugged in with a Filipino exchange, which then turns these Satoshi's into dollars again and then this operator in the Philippines which is a some sort of financial institution then deposits these hundred dollars that were sent via Satoshi's into Juan's bank account okay why'd you do this instead of sending a wire transfer or using some other traditional financial means and the answer is that sending international wires is actually pretty costly and difficult because the swift message protocol that banks are using to talk to each other is a proprietary network run by the swift corporation there's a lot of KYC and AML and sanctions compliance that has to go into every transaction. So it's really just kind of a huge pain in the ass. And that's why wire transfers cost $25. And companies like Western Union and MoneyGram, they, I think, use Swift payments to move money between their branches throughout the world. But I suspect that they kind of batch together lots of user payments. And this makes the process kind of slow and it takes several days and they might be able to save a buck, but they still charge pretty high premiums, you know, up to 20% in some cases, which is crazy. It's almost userous. But what Strike is doing with the Lightning Network is they're actually using the Bitcoin Lightning Network as a fast payment network between countries. And then once the funds are in the target country, they then rely on a local partner to sell the Bitcoin into whatever currency the local person wants, usually dollars though, and then send it to a bank account. So there's trust involved in using Strike because Strike could freeze your account. The local banking partner could freeze the account or steal the money or send it to the wrong account. All of this stuff can happen. At the same time, it's strictly better than using Western Union or MoneyGram or, or one of these money sending businesses because it has drastically lower fees. And it's really cool that this is happening for people in the Philippines because apparently the US sends about a billion dollars to the Philippines every month. So you save a couple percentage points in fees on those transactions and people back home in the Philippines are going to be getting a lot more money in their pocket. And I think they'll appreciate that. The other interesting thing about using lightning in the background without people even necessarily needing to care or know about it is I think it does onboard people to Bitcoin. You know, if you discover that Bitcoin has been enabling something that is very useful to you and saving you money, that's a nice discovery. That's really cool. And I think that is kind of how successful technologies are used. They end up being the backbone for all sorts of services. And the end user has no idea what's going on underneath the hood. They just know that they're getting a great product, a great experience. They're getting some value and they're happy. So I'm very bullish on strike and what they're doing. I wonder what the next country they're going to target this at. I mean, I guess they're just going down the list of countries that send the most remittances to and from or from the United States, and they're just hitting them one by one. So pretty cool. Okay, I have a privacy article. And frankly, I think it's a little alarmist. I also want to give a shout out to No BS Bitcoin, link in the show notes. They're this really good Bitcoin news source. They started as a Telegram channel, then they build a website, I guess, to kind of capture the traffic 
geographic footprint of people using their service. And I understand that. Though honestly, it was, was kind of nicer when it was just a Telegram channel. You'd sometimes have these like really big conversations in the in the comments on the articles. I mean, lots of people would join in the in the talk. Giacomo Zucco would jump in. Paul Storks would jump in. People would kind of have little fights. Fiat Jaff in the comment section on articles. It was it was pretty lively. But now it's uh, a website. And, you know, it's good too, and it archives the content. Um, you know, I assume they host it themselves, so they don't have to worry about Telegram taking down the channel. So that's nice. But anyway, they um, directed me to this article by Mulvad VPN. I think Mulvad is great. I really like as a VPN provider, they do a lot of things that make me feel pretty comfortable that they care about my privacy. Mulvad is so good at privacy that they disable features if you pay for your VPN with a credit card. Because if you pay for your VPN with a credit card, that attaches this credit card payment to the IP address you're connecting to their VPN server from. And that's personal information. And they actually prevent you from doing things that would give them more information on you. So I think it's a very thoughtful business. And I, I just think they're great. So they should really sponsor this podcast. I know everyone says don't take a VPN sponsor. You know, everyone's being sponsored by like NordVPN or ExpressVPN or something. And those are not good VPNs, in my opinion. Just stay away from those companies. They track users. They, they're a mess. But I, I would totally take a sponsorship from Malvad. So put the word out, please. The issue that the Mulvad team is concerned about is that the EU is working on a chat control law. And Mulvad characterizes this as a uh, totalitarian control of all private communication. This law requires all software application stores to assess whether each service provided by the software they're selling enables human-to-human communication. Okay, very broad. They have to verify that each user is over the age of 17, and they have to prevent users under 17 from installing So the instinct is that they need to essentially protect children under the age of 17 from being able to access communication software, presumably because they're just all sorts of bad people who want to communicate with them and, you know, send them disturbing messages and pictures and whatnot. I don't know about that assessment. I think that seems a little unreasonable to prevent young people from using chat apps. I mean, I imagine in the future, I'll want to use an encrypted chat app to communicate with my daughter. But the issue is the way that this law defines a software application store, a type of online intermediation service, which is focused on software applications as the intermediate product or service. And this worries Mulvan because this seems to cover online software archives, such as those that provide the software for open source operating systems such as Debian, such as Ubuntu, such as CentOS, or OpenSUSE. These are all the Linux operating systems, operating systems that your Bitcoin dad uses for all of his computers, that Chris of Jupiter Broadcasting uses for all of their computers. Open source Linux operating systems, and and actually there are also some Unix operating systems that are still in operation that I think are generally less open source, but they're sort of cousins to Linux. These systems are actually the backbone of our digital civilization because most of the materials we consume 
the supply chains, the infrastructure that arranges these materials, that enables power grids, enables transportation systems to work, it's all software running on servers. Servers are just machines that run 24-7. They're not like our desktops that are kind of designed to be turned off every day. They they just run forever, essentially. It's the image of these like uh, racks in a data center, and there are these sort of like very flat but wide computers on them blinking and you know if you've never sort of thought about them they look kind of intimidating and weird and sci-fi but actually this is sort of the hardware that's running our civilization and our economy is running on these servers and the operating system on i kid you not i'm not just being a linux fan 95 percent plus this is all linux this is all open source operating systems open source operating systems are really important and mulvad is concerned that this eu law basically says hey the way that these open source operating systems distribute software it's clearly an application store and you need to implement a program to identify every user and figure out their age to make sure that they don't download any communication software that might enable them to talk to a pervert online or something like that. And, you know, that's obviously crazy. There's no way that open source projects, which are volunteer projects, could implement KYC programs to verify user age. It would just be, it's completely impossible, completely unreasonable, and uh, just, just insanity. Now, there's actually a note. I think the article was updated. I think someone kind of let them know that there's probably some carve-outs for open-source operating systems in this crazy law uh, against communication privacy and user privacy. So perhaps we don't need to worry, but it's something to be aware of. It's something to kind of have at the back of your mind because we take for granted the fact that we can use Signal, we can use Matrix. Uh, These are uh, open-source applications, though I know don't come after me with pitchforks. I know that Signal does not open-source their server software. They just open-source their client software, but you can kind of infer what's going on on the server from the client software, I think, and we're pretty sure that the Signal server is not spying on users. So we're, we take for granted our access to encrypted communication software, and we also take for granted that we don't need to provide our identification before we download communication software. It's not okay to say, hey, dad, I noticed you downloaded Signal and have been using Signal. The fact that you're communicating privately suggests that maybe you're a criminal. You're not allowed to do that, at least in the United States. And I don't think we want to live in a world where trying to protect yourself from invasions of your privacy is illegal. I, I would find that very sad if that were the world we live in. Now, I'm going to just riff a little bit on an economic subject because I've been thinking about this for a couple months and I really haven't found like the perfect article that would introduce this. And so I'm just going to mention a few things. I think many people who follow financial markets and Bitcoin prices have noticed that there has been a pretty big rally in the price of Bitcoin this year. Bitcoin fell to around $16,000, and I think it's been shooting up to about $24,000. If you just divide the numbers, you can see that that's a 50% increase off the low in a few months. Pretty bullish, right? There have also been relatively high jobs reports data in the United States, and Jerome Powell, the chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve that sets the federal funds rate, which is considered to be the price of dollar money, the price of time, interest rates. This is set by Jerome Powell, essentially, which is kind of a weird way to organize our world, but there you have it. Now, Jerome, in his last speech, 
I believe, said the word disinflation eight times. And it, again, this will seem crazy if you don't follow the Fed or understand the culture around the Federal Reserve, but financial institutions pay people to analyze every word in these speeches, to count every word, to count the keywords, to look at Jerome Powell's tie and see if that tie contains a secret about his mood and his views on the future. So it's pretty crazy the level of scrutiny that Jerome Powell is under during a speech about the Federal Reserve's uh, policy stance. And by saying disinflation a lot, he seems to be indicating that the Fed is getting ready to maybe uh, get a little bit more dovish, less uh, aggressive in their rate hikes, maybe stop hiking interest rates. And so the financial markets are up a little bit on this sentiment that maybe the Fed will stop tightening financial conditions. Now, people like Lynn Alden have said that actually, if you look at the Treasury General account, which is essentially the U.S. government's checking account, it has been drawing down recently as that account draws down. It's sort of putting dollars into circulation in the world, which is in essence loosening financial conditions. And so essentially, even though the Fed has been raising interest rates and reducing slightly the size of their balance sheet, the U.S. Treasury has actually been injecting dollars into the world by paying government bills. I mean, I don't know if I agree with that point of view because I just haven't looked at the data myself and formed an educated opinion. It seems to me that the Treasury general account is mostly used to pay Social Security, medical care, salaries to federal employees, things like that, U.S. government suppliers. So I don't know if that money would directly go into financial markets. I feel like it would have to cycle through corporate and individual balance sheets before it ends up back in the treasury market or into the stock market. So I wonder how changes in the treasury general account really affect stock market, financial system liquidity. But I can't know the answer, and I don't think, frankly, anyone does. But I just want to mention a point of view popularized by Jeffrey Schneider of Eurodollar University. And I think Chris would say, don't promote other podcasts on your podcast, but I don't think we're competing with Jeff Schneider. Jeff Schneider has a very singular focus on economic data. He has a, he's a, I think he's a polymath. He's a very wide ranging uh, interest in financial markets and history. He also kind of thinks a little bit about the geopolitical implications of certain financial policies. I'm, I'm just a huge fan of Jeff. And Jeff has pointed out that essentially the soft landing narrative is something that pops up before every big recession. And in 2007, before the uh, Lehman failure and the 2008 recession really got started, there was talk of a soft light landing. And in many ways, there are corollaries with the present. Jobs data wasn't looking so terrible before it fell off a cliff in 2008. And again, it's not looking so terrible now. But there were these weird inversions in the treasury markets. And specifically, Jeff talks a lot about the twos, tens inversion. So the two-year treasury bill, that's a bond that the U.S. Treasury sells, which comes due in two years, and the 10-year treasury bill, which is a bond that comes due in 10 years. And if we're just going to be 
sort of logical here, you would think that if I'm going to give my money to the U.S. Treasury for 10 years, I would need a much higher interest rate because of the risk involved, the amount of time, the opportunity cost of giving the Treasury your money for 10 years is so much higher than giving them your money for two years that the 10-year Treasury bond must have a much higher interest rate than the two-year Treasury bond, right? Well, actually, that's not true right now. The 10-year is trading under the two-year. What this means is that there is something odd happening in the treasury market, which is considered the world's deepest and most important sovereign debt market. And in a way, this is kind of the most important market for dollar liquidity in the world. So why is the short end of the curve, the one month, three month, you know, six months, one year treasuries, why do they have a higher interest rate than two year treasuries and 10 year treasuries? That just makes no sense. The short the duration of the bond, the lower the interest rate. That's the logic. And Jeff says that this is pretty clearly the market saying that actually interest rates are going to fall precipitously in the future, that the Fed will have to cut interest rates and the mechanism that will force the Fed to cut interest rates will be a terrible economy and financial stress and, you know, just bad things happening. And so what you see is essentially high demand for very liquid treasury bonds. And liquid means shorter duration. The shorter the duration, the faster you get your money back, the kind of closer to money they become. Essentially, there's this argument on the one hand that the economy doesn't seem that bad and that jobs data doesn't seem that bad. And so we're probably going to have a soft landing, even though the Federal Reserve raised the Fed funds rate from essentially 0% to four and change percent over a year, which is very fast, you know, coming off a 0% baseline and going to 4%, that's, you know, infinite increase in interest rates, essentially, it's a massive increase over zero. And that this doesn't seem to have killed the financial economy and everything's fine. And on the other hand, uh, Jeff has a point of view, which is the economy breaks much slower than you think, and much less predictably. So I just want to throw this out there because I think that when the Bitcoin price is jumping off of a bottom, a lot of people can be very exuberant, can start piling into an uptrend, and sometimes that reverses quite brutally. So it's good to kind of keep both possibilities in mind and make sure that you don't get too excited and make any sort of rash decisions that uh, you might regret. The Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a show about running your own stuff at home using a server. And a server could be an old laptop, it could be a big fancy machine in Iraq, or it could be a Raspberry Pie or a rock pie or an Odroid M2, I think is maybe the name of the hot new Odroid. These are all computers you can buy, little server computers, and they're very power efficient and enable you to have a small machine running all the time doing some cool thing in the background, like maybe running a media server so you can kind of have your own private Netflix. And in fact, Chris and Alex of the self-hosted show had an episode recently about Jellyfin, which is a self-hosted media server application. And Chris 
is not only hosting movies with it, but he can also somehow get YouTube to work with it in a very cool way and save YouTube videos that he likes. So I listened to the episode and I've been trying to figure out the whole YouTube video saving thing and it's pretty cool. So I recommend you check out selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app. Okay, we're at Bitcoin Education. So Bitcoin Optech 236 is out. It's, it's a good one. There are two large news items in this Optech, and I really wanted to discuss both with Chris, but I'm just going to focus on the first, which is a serverless pay join proposal. And pay join is a really cool privacy technique in Bitcoin, because generally when you're paying someone in Bitcoin, your wallet searches through all of your UTXOs, your unspent transaction outputs, your little pieces of Bitcoin that you have, and it finds one or more UTXOs that kind of fit the transaction profile, the amount you want to send. And so this means that for companies like Chainalysis, who are surveilling the chain, they can use this simple heuristic called the common input ownership heuristic, meaning that if all of the UTXOs going into a transaction, they likely came from one person or entity. Well, PayJoin breaks this heuristic, and it means that if you are going to pay me, you could actually use one of my UTXOs as an input into the transaction to make it just confusing to people to see what's going on. Well, how does this work, and, and why would you want to do this? Well, you have to remember that when you spend a Bitcoin UTXO, let's say you have a UTXO, which is two Bitcoin, and you want to pay me 0.5 Bitcoin. So it's not like this UTXO is like a chunk of gold and you like cut off a quarter of it and you give it to me. When a UTXO is spent, it's more like all the coins are sent into a smelter and they're melted down into new coins. And so they're like ultimately destroyed and then sent back to you. So some coins are given to me or, or when you melt down all these coins, one UTXO, one coin is given to me and then another UTXO goes back to you. But with the pay join, what happens is I provide a UTXO. And so let's say two UTXOs go into the transaction, one for me, one for you, and then two UTXOs come out, one for me, one for you. But for Chainalysis, as they look at this transaction, they're like, well, this is weird. It doesn't look like someone's being paid. It looks like someone's sending money to themselves, but they're sending it in an odd way. This is just a cool way to kind of transact privately and give a big middle finger to Chainalysis and the other chain surveillance companies. I think Elliptic is one. They suck. So just make their lives as hard as possible and protect uh, your privacy. Super cool. Now, what is serverless pay join? Well, because we need to collaborate to do this transaction where we're both contributing U UTXOs, I mean, we both need to be online. We need to be like communicating to coordinate this transaction. There needs to be a server enabling this. There needs to be a computer somewhere which is kind of intermediating this interaction. And that now is a point of failure. It's a point of complication. Someone needs to secure the server. What if hackers access the server? What damage could they do? A lot of questions there. So this proposal by Dan Gold, which was posted on the Bitcoin dev mailing list, is to essentially use something called the noise protocol so that you can have a pay join compatible wallet, probably on your phone, and it would essentially spin up a small web server when you need to do a pay join 
and do a noise protocol handshake with someone who I guess is either right next to you or across the internet. And you guys would just do this ad hoc peer-to-peer connection to do the pay join instead of having to have kind of a 24-7 server running in the background. And the noise protocol, which there's a link to in the show notes, is this really interesting cryptographic protocol, which is all about forming handshakes. And so in cryptography, it's really important to kind of authenticate the person you're dealing with and make sure that there's not a man in the middle who's kind of screening all of your communication and and spoofing messages and potentially feeding you false data or stealing all your data. So the noise protocol is a very clever way to do a handshake safely and then to kind of keep the communication message series secure and private. So check it out. Now, the last thing I want to talk about are ordinals. I mentioned in the intro, ordinals are a creation by a fellow named Casey. Sorry, Casey, I'm blanking on your last name. And they're super cool. Instead of a link to an article or anything, I just linked directly to the Ordinals website. And if you look at it, you're going to think, gosh, this looks a lot like some NFT stuff. Like, I didn't know Bitcoin was about NFTs. And the answer is, you know, Bitcoin hasn't been traditionally about NFTs. But Casey likes NFTs. And so as a result, he created a protocol that lives on top of Bitcoin and leverages Taproot to create on-chain Bitcoin. He calls them inscriptions. But I mean, they mostly are NFTs. They're mostly like JPEG avatar faces, pictures of joints. Someone put the U.S. Constitution in here. There are a lot of rare Pepe's. Pepe is a common internet meme about a green frog who kind of funny things happens to. There's a a Bitcoin wizard. There's this uh, old meme of a wizard like shooting Bitcoin and the caption magical internet money. So it's just people having a good time. Now, how does this work? And should we be worried? So the way it works is Casey created this system of rules called ordinals. And ordinals is just a way to count Satoshis from the beginning of time. And so the first Satoshi in the first block, like maybe from the Coinbase or something, would be one. And then that there are 50 Bitcoin in that block. So there's 50 times 100 million Satoshis in that first block. And then when you make Bitcoin transactions, ordinals has a standard on how you kind of count the Satoshis that come out of every transaction. And so ordinals is a way, and it's just arbitrary. Like he's just interpreting Bitcoin blockchain data in a very specific way, but in a way that predictably can identify every UTXO and does so consistently. Well, why do you want to do this? Well, now you can take one of these UTXOs and you can make kind of a weird taproot transaction with it. And from the Bitcoin blockchain perspective, it's a valid transaction. It pays transaction fees, but it just looks a little weird and it probably uses more data than you'd be expecting. And well, if you're running the ordinals software, your node will look at this transaction and interpret it. And this extra data is actually can be decoded as an image, as a document. And this is really consistent with Casey's previous work because Casey really wanted to uh, use Bitcoin to monetize data so that you could have a web server with some data. Maybe it's a book you're selling and someone could send you Bitcoin and they could get the data. And he observed that his implementation of that, no one seemed to use it or find it interesting the way he was hoping. And so he kind of moved on. But this is this is in a similar uh, vein. You know, this is kind of a way to use Bitcoin to share internet content. And it's all on chain. So if you were going 
going to do NFTs, you would want your NFT to be on chain, you know, because a lot of NFTs on Ethereum, they're actually the data is not that, that big on chain, because what they've done is they've just encoded a URL that points to a web server that hosts the image. And this is really stupid, because you have to hope that that whoever maintains that web server keeps the image online and doesn't change the image. And actually, it has happened that there have been NFTs where if you bought the NFT, this is actually a joke by Moxie Marlinspike, the founder of Signal, with the encrypted messaging app we mentioned before. He made this NFT and it was some cool image or something. But then when you bought it, it turned into an image of a turd. And this was kind of Moxie, kind of like he likes to troll the cryptocurrency crowd. I, I honestly think he's like a little jealous of all the stuff that's happening there. And that's why he wasn't opposed to creating an altcoin uh, to integrate with Signal, which really makes it a less cool messaging app, in my opinion. So should we be worried about ordinals, about them swamping the Bitcoin blockchain with data? Frankly, you, you could do this already. You know, you could already put arbitrary data onto the Bitcoin blockchain. You could use the op return field to put 80 bytes of data. This is a way to put more data onto the blockchain. But with SegWit, you have a maximum size of a block, which is four megabytes. And we have actually hit that block limit recently due to an ordinal sort of transcription slash NFT transaction. Now, in some ways, this is good because if blocks are full, this creates a fee market. Most people think that Bitcoin security relies on the development of a fee market. And as Bitcoin adoption picks up, activities like ordinals will likely be priced off of the Bitcoin main chain. And, you know, the main chain will be used to move very large amounts of money. At the same time, you know, if we get every block being full with full sort of SegWit witness data, that means four megabyte blocks, there's 144 blocks per day. It's like 560 megabytes a day. That's more than a gigabyte every two days. Every month, you'd have about 17 more gigabytes of Bitcoin data. I mean, the, the chain would grow much faster. But the thing is, these are the rules. SegWit was a block size upgrade, and you can put a lot of witness data in the SegWit part of a block. And Taproot enables you to also do interesting things with witness data, like store images in there if you want to. So Ordinals is not breaking any rules. And to be honest, the thing that sort of made me sweat a little as I read about this and looked at the images on the Ordinals website was I thought, gosh, you know, this makes it really easy to put really bad stuff in here, you know, like really bad images, stuff that, you know, you'd never want to see, right? And I thought, gosh, if someone's going to do that, and then people are going to say Bitcoin is bad because there's terrible, horrible things encoded in the blockchain. And then I'd have to defend it. You know, I, I, I just I get so tired of defending all the Nazis who use Bitcoin, all the fascists, all the North Koreans, hackers who are using Bitcoin to fund their nuclear program. I mean, they're literally using cryptocurrency to buy things that fund their nuclear program, according to the FBI. So I just thought, gosh, I, I don't want to have to defend another odious use case. But the thing is, it's always been possible. Ordinals is just a, a better way to do this. And in fact, I think a long time ago, people put hashes of viruses into the Bitcoin blockchain. So they made transactions with arbitrary data that matched various patterns that virus scanners on Windows are looking for. So if you 
have a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain on a Windows computer and you run McAfee or Norton antivirus, it's going to flag Bitcoin as being a virus because someone put just some of these virus patterns as transaction data in the Bitcoin blockchain. I mean, it's not a virus. It's not going to hurt your computer. It's just this this shorthand for there might be a virus there that the malware scanner uses to identify potential threats. So people have already kind of put bad stuff in the blockchain to kind of attack Bitcoin or just be trolls. So anyway, I I calm down. I look at this. Seems kind of cool. Seems kind of fun. I'm glad people are having a good time. I am uh, not too worried about what's going to come out of this. Okay, feedback. You can always get in touch. Bitcoin Dadpod at protonmail.com or at Bitcoin Dadpod on Twitter. Also consider joining the show Matrix channel. Links in the chat. And also uh, in the Matrix channel today, there was a note from our good friend Hal9000 who busted me. He was like, hold on a second. The Bitcoin Dadpod is just mooching off of the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix infrastructure, but you're not a Jupiter Broadcasting show. What's going on here? And uh, and it's true. I'm just mooching off of Chris's international podcasting infrastructure and know-how. Why am I doing that? Why didn't don't I stand on my own two feet and pull myself up by my bootstraps, even though that's physically impossible? Well, I mean, you know, what can I say? Chris is like a mafia godfather of podcasting. He makes you an offer, you accept that offer. That's all I'm saying. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. I'm actually in the midst of a really interesting email thread with a listener right now. I'm waiting to hear back from him. Hopefully he'll say he'll have a cool update and he'll let me tell you about it. But in the meantime, we have some boosts. We received 4,200 sats from Tarasa24, my first ever boost. And it only made sense to be addressed to the Bitcoin podcast that introduced me to this whole thing. Whoa, no way. That's awesome. Sent from Podverse, open source, using Albi, backed by Electrum and sats obtained purely KYC-less because in Czechia, anonymous Bitcoin for cash ATMs are still a thing. Keep up the great show. We'll definitely boost more in the future. Wow, that is so cool to hear that someone kind of got into Bitcoin from our show and is using open source tools and like super hacky, cool backends and KYC-less Bitcoin for cash ATMs. So awesome. I used a KYC-free Bitcoin for cash, cash for Bitcoin ATM this summer in Eastern Europe. It was so awesome. Such a great experience. And just thanks so much for the boost. Okay, we also got a row of sticks, 1,111 sats from Hal was right. I disagree. Do use Bitcoin as a retirement fund. I recommend putting in the amount of saving equal to the chances you give Bitcoin as being the reserve asset of the world. Oh, that's a great response, Hal. This was from a comment we got last week where someone boosted in using sats, which are Bitcoins, to say, don't use Bitcoin for a retirement strategy. It is unsafe and just speculative. And so we're getting kind of a conversation here about that. And that's that's really fun. We also got a thousand sats from Oatwalker with the message, this is just a test. Indeed it is. Thanks for the boost. Hal from right boosted in again with another row of sticks to say there is no social contract, at least not one I agreed. Yeah, you know, that is kind of a very, dare I say, libertarian point of view. I, I 
think I disagree. I think that there are general expectations about how other people should treat you and how you should treat other people. And I think that forms sort of a social contract. But I might have been talking about something broader, maybe the way that the government guarantees retirements and how they're not really guaranteed anymore because it's very unlikely for most pension plans in the developed world to be funded uh, in the next 20 years. So can agree to disagree. We also got 1,001 sats from at Marcel. I'm curious about the hype with RoboSats when BISC exists. I understand lightning for boost, daily spending, etc. But why go RoboSats to Moon to Sparrow when you could just do it all on chain? RoboSats also seems not fully baked when I tried it. I saw potential, but some parts of the UI seemed clunky. That's a really good point, Marcel. I think, frankly, that uh, BISC is a little intimidating. Um, you have to install software, you have to verify it, you have to create a new wallet. With RoboSats, you're just accessing a Tor page. I, th- I think in terms of the user experience, RoboSats seems easier to onboard, and obviously it's faster. You actually need, I mean, you need Bitcoin, use both, because Lightning means you have Bitcoin in a Lightning channel, and BISC needs Bitcoin as a kind of a fidelity bond or something to guarantee that you're not a a gammer. So that's a good point. But um, I also think that there is something wrong with BISC, with the way that BISC is being developed. They have a DAO. Wiz has been very critical of the BISC DAO and the BISC color coin that they create kind of power this DAO. He thinks it creates uh, altcoiner incentives to pump the value of the BISC token. And yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't really have a view. Wiz once said that he proposed making a mobile app for BISC, which I think would have driven huge amounts of adoption because people love mobile apps on their phone. You know, that that's how Facebook got huge was creating the first social media mobile app and that the BISC DAO was not interested. They wanted to keep things the way it was. And and I wonder what the story was there. Seems like uh, Wiz is a really serious uh, person in the space. And, you know, if he was behind making something like a mobile app, I'd be super excited if he wanted to do that for my project. So, you know, my sense is that like this kind of hasn't taken off the way it could have. And maybe there are some issues with the governance there and the direction of the project as well. So that kind of leaves the field open for things like RoboSats come in. So just my two cents. Marcel boosts in again with 5,000 sats. Off topic correction. Microsoft does have code signing and they started warning about unsigned installers, but it's a poorly implemented dumpster fire full of paid middlemen, just like most things over there. The amount of time and money I've seen companies go through to create EXE installers and sign their software boggles the mind. Ugh, preach, Marcel, preach. Yeah, it is. It is a mess in Microsoft's enterprise land. You know, please, everyone, drink the Kool Aid, accept the penguin of Linux into your heart. And yeah, it's a change. You have to learn some things. But at the end of the day, you'll just feel better about it. We received 5,000 sats from Anacalpis. And I don't think there was a message. Just 5,000 sats. That's awesome. Thank you. We also received... 4,040 sats from Barnmeister. Thank you very much. And 2,000 sats, oh, who said, enjoy it as usual, gents. Thank you. And then 2,000 sats from an anonymous user on Fountain. We also have another comment from Atnat. 
at Nat is our anti-Bitcoin, anti-Bitcoin retirement listener. Really appreciate you uh, coming in to talk. So Nat says, I am not simply anti-Bitcoin. If you want to get comments via boost, and since I don't have to use real money to boost, I am happy to boost. And that makes sense because if you don't see Bitcoin as valuable, then you're happy, like it's fine to use a valueless thing to communicate. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Even if you really believe in Bitcoin, your retirement is too important to risk on something improvement. Land, Roth IRAs, and bonds are all much safer bets. I don't want anyone to get hurt. Even Bitcoin developers lose it all. Don't hoard cash in your mattress. You are not a better banker than the bank. Now, that is a really reasonable point, and I like that you express it here, because I agree that you have to hedge your bets. You have to be probabilistic in your approach to preparing for the future. And, you know, land has been a good investment over the last 10 years in some places. Roth IRAs are a very specific retirement option available only to Americans. And I mean, bonds, well, are bonds much safer? It really depends on where you are in your time frame. Bonds issued by governments in Africa generally been pretty speculative and, and not done so well. Bonds issued in South America also speculative and not so well. Bonds issued by England. There was actually a blow up in the English gilt market, which is their certain type of government bond they sell just a few months ago that uh, briefly made their entire pension system insolvent. So I think that bonds have been good investments from about 1982 to, let's say, 2019. You know, I think they were very good investments over that period. And that was consistent with interest rates falling over that period, which sort of prices bonds issued at higher interest rates higher because of the way bond math works. So agree with your sentiment that we should be cautious. But um, I think that your assumption that land Roth IRAs and bonds are just, you know, much, much safer than Bitcoin, you know, it rests on some assumptions that we won't have a government budget crisis that seems to be implied by Treasury data, which shows the essentially the US government debt increasing at a steeper than 45 degree angle over the next couple decades, because, you know, uh, debt is now such a large proportion of GDP that interest on the debt is, is essentially piling on top of the existing debt at an accelerating pace. This is a sort of situation that has, in history, resulted in money printing, in monetary debasement. And in situations like that, bonds are not a good investment. So it really depends on what you think the future holds. But really, thank you for participating in the conversation. We got another boost, 4,200 sats from adopting Bitcoin. How bullish are you guys on Noster? A permissionless and censorship resistant public communication protocol was missing and is now here and usable. Any thoughts? Iris.to, I think uh, snort.social, both PWA, and Amethyst work well on Android, while Domus seems to be the go-to client on iOS. So adopting Bitcoin, thank you so much for those recommendations. I I've been looking at Noster. I've been hesitant to try it. It took me a while to even try Matrix. I guess I'm kind of a slow adopter because I don't have so much time. New protocols are, I don't know, it just feels like a big step. So, you know, thank you for uh, calling the attention to, to that. I'm really interested to see what will happen with something like Noster. And I love 
Love How, produced by Fiat Jaff, who I think is such a cool guy. And, you know, essentially, this is a peer-to-peer communication. Why is it peer-to-peer? It's more of like a decentralized, because I think you, it still relies on relay servers. But it's a way to sign messages using a public-private key pair. And so we just have to scan for public keys to find the messages of people I want. There's no KYC onboarding. It's just a protocol that works across the internet. So I think it could be interesting. At the same time, I have heard points of view that the value of Twitter was that it was a town square, that that it actually did sort of centralize debate. And so what we're seeing with Matrix and maybe with Noster is sort of debate and communities getting smaller again, more scattered, less centralized. Maybe that's good, or maybe it's less fun. I'm not sure. Uh, We'll just have to sort of see how it works out. And I will be hopping on iris.to or amethyst or something, try it out on an Android device and see if I can do some nostering. Our final boost was 10,101 sats. That was our big boost of the week. It's not a name attached to it. So I'm sorry if I use from the podcast index. I guess that's why. Love the show, gentlemen. Question for you regarding best practices. I'm improving my cold storage by moving from a legacy ledger wallet to a SegWit cold card wallet. Is it best to keep everything together as one UTXO or is it best to split it up into many smaller transactions since this is for long-term cold storage. Does it matter? Thanks, Dad and Chris. Well, thanks for the big boost. So I think that it really depends. So here's going to be an unsatisfying answer. You know, if these are KYC-free SATs and they're all from the same place, then that's a private UTXO. And as you sort of spend from it, you know, what you spend it on could perhaps identify the owner of the UTXO. So yeah, so that's a thought. Another thought is that if it's a KYC UTXO and it hasn't gone through a coin join, then who cares? Just send the whole UTXO to your new wallet. You know, if you have a mix of KYC and non-KYC UTXOs in your wallet, then I think it makes sense to manage them independently, to label them, to make sure that you don't mix KYC with non-KYC, because then that kind of doxes the non-KYC UTXOs. In terms of usability, if we're just concerned about your wallet kind of working, whether or not you create multiple UTXOs or one UTXO, there's sort of no difference. And so my instinct is to kiss it, keep it simple, stupid, and just send it to your new wallet and verify those send addresses very carefully so you don't make a fat-fingered mistake and just be done with it. Those are my two sets. Thank you so much for the boost this week. We got so many. It was uh, so fun to hear from the audience. And also we got uh, quite a few boosts under the limit. And uh, thank you for those boosts. We didn't read them on the show. We broke the rule for Adnat because it's rare to have a anti Bitcoiner boosting in. I think it really adds to the debate. Cool point of view to have on this show, I think. But if you were under the limit and we didn't read your boost on the show, we, we read it off air and enjoyed it and our appreciative of your point of view. That's it. This was the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 4th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad. I've been here alone this week. I somehow talked for about an hour straight. I don't know how that happened, but thank you for listening and see you next time.